The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Moira Bierce, or Senators Supporting the Protecting Americans with Pre-Existing Conditions Act. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 27, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, it's the last go at candidates on our November 3rd, 2020 ballot, striking a legislative theme here. We first hear from Jordan Wood, representing Congresswoman Katie Porter as her chief of staff and part-time campaign volunteer. Then in the second segment, and keeping this legislative theme, is Assemblywoman Kari Petrie Norse defending her incumbency in the California 74th Assembly District. back to the show. My first guest is Jordan Wood speaking as a surrogate for Congresswoman Katie Porter serving in the 45th Congressional District. She's running for a second term in the U.S. Congress. As her chief of staff, Jordan Wood manages a team of 18 staffers in serving the people of California's 45th Congressional District in both Washington, D.C. and in Orange County. He also advises the Congresswoman on policy matters and serves as liaison with other congressional offices and outside advocates. And today speaks as a part-time campaign volunteer. Previously, Jordan Wood was vice president for political operations at N Citizens United. Now about the candidate. Congressman Katie Porter serves on the Committee on Financial Services and several subcommittees. I, you can look up her website. I don't have time to go into all of those. The Committee on Oversight and Reform, the subcommittee being on economic and consumer policy, and the caucuses are numerous. I'll name a few. California Delegation, the College Affordability Caucus, Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Congressional Mental Health Caucus, the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, and the Sustainable Energy Environmental Coalition. Prior to Congresswoman Katie Porter's single-handedly driving up demand for whiteboards, she has developed expertise in commercial and consumer law, including bankruptcy, mortgage foreclosure, and credit cards. Her research has been published in journals, including Texas Law Review, the Georgetown Law Review, the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, and the Cornell Law Review. Before her appointment at UC Irvine, Congresswoman Porter was on the faculty at the University of Iowa College of Law and a visiting professor at the law schools at Harvard, UC Berkeley, University of Illinois, and University of Las Vegas. She practiced bankruptcy law in Portland, Oregon, and clerked for the Honorable Richard Arnold of the Eighth Circuit Court. Moreover, Congresswoman Porter took to Congress her work as a principal investigator in the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project, a fellow of the Bankruptcy Data Project at Harvard, and a member of the World Bank Insolvency and Creditor-Debtor Regimes Task Force Working Group on Natural Persons Insolvency. Congresswoman Porter completed her Bachelor of Arts from Yale University and her Juris Doctor at Harvard Law School. 
Speaking now on her behalf is her chief of staff and part-time campaign volunteer, Jordan Wood. He comes to us today from his home in Los Angeles for now. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jordan Wood. Thank you, Claudia. Great to be here. Well, I'm going to just timestamp this because one never knows how much breaking news happens between now at this recording and the broadcast Tuesday, October 27th. Today is October 24th. Well, let's, I'm just going to begin with a little staff business, Jordan, and then we'll go on to policy and intergovernmental machinations. So every one of you 18 are essential workers, correct? Yes, that's correct. So you're rotating duty in the federal and the district offices. So you staffers to a freshman congresswoman had to shake off the government shutdown while trying to move in January 2019, then impeachment proceedings initiated in earnest December 2019, then a lockdown in mid-March of 2020 that spread all of you out and around the country. I'm imagining this is pretty stifling with all the government gears you were there to get moving. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, in, in mid-March, on CDC guidance, um, and really in line with what we were seeing immediately in Orange County with, with the lockdown, we shut our in-person offices in, in Irvine and in, in D.C. and moved the entire office to telework. So since mid-March, um, folks have been working from home. And when the congresswoman has had to travel out to D.C. for voting, um, I'm the only staffer that's gone in the office. So uh, have played a, a, a number of roles uh, making up for those gaps, but we really try to limit, um, again, the number of staff that physically have to be in the office for safety precautions. So you're there to report to all staff what the congressional records still smell like in the office. <laughs> yeah. So with all um, the viral wonky moments that Congresswoman Porter's logged in, I just, I'm curious, one more uh, staff question. Is it top down or bottom up? In driving that testimony, she's eliciting from J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, HUD Secretary Ben Carson, Postmaster Louis DeJoy, CDC Director Robert Redfield, to name a few. So are you asking sort of how, how she approaches the questioning with those officials? Is it top down or bottom up? I mean, like, are, are, is everybody sort of, is it working in both directions about that how these kinds of policy matters are staged with that super famous whiteboard by now? Yeah, I mean, the congresswoman really works in a collaborative way with her team when she is finds out that a certain witness is becoming from before either the oversight or the financial services committee, uh, meeting with her designated legislative staffer who works on the committee with us, but also her legislative director, myself, and our communications director, um, working together on formulating the best line of questioning, doing the research ahead of time, um, and also looking at what other people on the committee are going to be asking about what, so we don't having overlap. But there's a great deal of research, of practice, to make sure that what we're going for is actually going to get an answer that the American people need, is going to uncover something um, and really draw attention and, and elevate these issues that the American people care about. Well, before I get into the application um, specific kinds of some realms here, I just, I feel it of necessity, Jordan would, to take note of the access that she's availed constituents. I am obvious, I am a constituent in the 45th. It's a very new sensation in the 45th. Um, you don't have to comment, but you can comment if you wish. 
Yeah, no, I, I would really like to, you know, when Katie was a candidate for Congress, she made several commitments to um, the voters of, of California 45th congressional district that she was going to make herself as transparent, as accessible as possible. And I think we've seen that spelled out in the number of public forums and town halls that she's had even during when the pandemic started, moving those over to telephone town halls, virtual Facebook town halls and otherwise. But she also, you know, she voluntarily publishes her um, congressional meeting calendar on her website. She's not required to do that and only a handful of member Congress uh, members do that. Huh. But she, she, you can go on her website and actually see who is she meeting with? Who's getting her time? Um, what constituents? And, and that transparency is really important to her. And it's something that adds staff time, more work that we have to do. But those are the type of steps that she takes to make sure that she is being as available and accessible to the people that put her there and that she's serving as the representative in Congress. And personally, I witnessed her, her nuanced capacity, her grasp uh, there was a supermarket union rally before the lockdown. I can't remember exactly if it was in February of this year or possibly January. And she had a grasp of all the layers of which unions were in what part of the supermarket. It was really phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where Congresswoman Porter elected to a term in the 117th Congress, what kinds of leadership roles does she aspire to and might she be grooming for? Yeah, you know, I, one thing I would say is she's in a really unique position as a freshman member of Congress who got, you know, she's, she's won appointments to two committees that are really natural fits for her, given her experience regulating the banking industry and holding um, Wall Street accountable for working people. Being on the Financial Services Committee has been on display with the way that she's questioned a number of witnesses um, is a great position for her. And then on the Oversight Committee, again, from everything from the CDC director, Redfield, to most recently, the CEOs of big pharma corporations, you know, these are places that she's really excelled. And that's a unique position for a freshman member of Congress to be in. And so, you know, I, other opportunities may be explored, but I do think these two committees she's on is, is, a, is a good fit. You know, you mentioned you couldn't list all of the caucuses that she's a part of, but one right. of the ones that she actually founded herself with a colleague from um, New York City, Max Rose, another freshman, is the End Corruption Caucus, which is yes. bringing together freshman members, primarily freshman members, that have really made holding government accountable, bringing more transparency and fighting corruption a priority. That's when she's led on. And, and as you know, Claudia, the, the first bill that was introduced to the new Congress, um, HR1, the For the People Act, was a big priority for the Congresswoman. And we hope that will be, again, the case in the next Congress. And so I think that that position there is going to be a focus early in the next term to make sure that we're actually able to deliver this if Democrats are able to take the Senate majority and win the White House, that this reform, which would be historic, uh, um, is something that's able to be enacted. So I think when we look into early next year, that's a leadership position that she's already taken on that we really helped to grow and, and expand. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jordan Wood speaking as a surrogate for Congresswoman Katie Porter serving in the 45th Congressional District up for re-election on the November 3rd general election ballot. Well, at this moment we're at, we're all pretty rattled with how the, the institution, that is the norms and the checks and balances in our federal government are really threatened. Mm -hmm. So Jordan, would, given how the Trump administration has appointed over 24% of the federal judiciary, 
the Federal Society seems to uh, conceivably have an extensive pipeline of litigants toward which the judiciary may be very sympathetic. How does Congresswoman Porter plan to manage challenges to any legislation that would be enacted in Congress? Even if there is a, ma a Democratic majority in the Senate and the House and a Democrat in the White House? Yes, yeah, good, good question. I mean, I think the the reality of the role that Katie has in the House is that they're not tasked with with approving um, judicial appointments or obviously anyone to the Supreme Court. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a role in reforming what is very clearly a broken process with the judiciary system and how um, Republicans have really filled these courts with with right wing judges. One example of that, you know, last week she co-sponsored a bill um, that would put term limits on the Supreme Court of 18 years um, as a reform that would hopefully really break up the partisanship that has has dictated the last several years on the court. But, you know, I, I would say that just on the example I gave around campaign finance reform in HR1 is that the Supreme Court has a long precedent that donors and nonprofits and corporations do not have a right in hiding their identity in making political contributions or spending to influence elections. So when we look at an issue that the Supreme Court has had rulings that those of us that support campaign finance reform oppose, um, you know, they have still outlined certain things that this legislation would uh, not go against. And so based on the previous precedents, I think a lot of what Katie has voted on and prioritized in this previous Congress aren't right now items that that would be brought before the court and overturned. But it's hard to predict exactly what would happen. But, but it is concerning, Jordan, that there is, it would take a leap of faith that the mm -hmm. Supreme Court as, as now it's composed, that the term limits legislation that would be passed in potentially both chambers uh, in the legislature, that that could be overturned by the Supreme Court. They will always have the last word. So I, I'm sure that's concerning to, to people involved in making policy at this point. It, it is, it is. And I think thinking about that problem as well, what, what can we do to fix it? What can we do to address it? And I think working on those reforms that would change the system um, around the judiciary, which is so clearly broken, is a good area to focus to, to make sure that the will of the people who are electing their members to Congress and senators to represent them, that the policy that they've elected them to enact is carried through. Okay, well, let's talk about the moment we're in. The COVID-19 pandemic mm -hmm. and the many, many social justice movements. How does the national response, talking about now those that the, the governed as much as those elected to public office, how does this body politic inform Congresswoman Porter about how to proceed with an even heavier lift, the more abstract, but not so abstract, necessary policy changes for climate change. You know, I think the pandemic in some ways has exposed the urgency around these issues. And, you know, if you look at the top 10 bills, the HR 1 through HR 10 that were introduced in the new Democratic majority, we cover issues from climate change to gun control to immigration reform. And keeping a, a view of all of the priorities that um, are facing this country. And we can't just narrow down and focus on one issue, but we need to think about all of them. And climate change is absolutely a, a 
top priority for the congresswoman. And again, I think both the pandemic and also the increase in, in wildfires across that have just been devastating in the state of California um, put that urgency even more so on it for both our entire delegation, but the congresswoman is constantly thinking of that. But Jordan, I'm thinking we can look at all of the graphs that show the surges in the cases of COVID around the country and state by state. And so that's something that uh, too many people in our nation are skeptical of. We don't even, we're not looking at parts per million of carbon loaded up in our atmosphere. I'm just saying it, if it's tough enough to make the COVID case to the public, what are we gonna do about that harder job of persuading people to get on board with climate change changes? It, it's a good question. And I think it, could the constant need to inform the public, but also not make this a partisan issue, right? This is a, a world, a planet that we all live and share. And it's important that we inform constantly of the realities of what this crisis means for, for us right now, but for future generations um, and continue to push that story, um, not just the science and data, it's, it's all important. And I think we continue to press on with that, but it's a, it's a concern and, and troubling for sure. So I just wanna reintroduce my guest for those of you who just joined us here on Ask a Leader at KUCI.org at Jordan Wood is speaking as a surrogate for Congresswoman Katie Porter, who is running for her second term in this 45th congressional district. So I don't know, you, well, you're in LA. I don't know where you're registered to vote, but I, I do need to trot out two propositions on our California general election ballot. And I'd like to know if you could weigh in for her about her position on two of those propositions. One is, the gig worker proposition, Prop 22. What is Congresswoman Porter's position on Prop 22? You know, Claudia, I don't have, the, the Congressman has not taken a position um, publicly on any of the propositions as, as far as I know. I can get back to you on that, but I, I don't believe that she's, she's weighed in on, on any of those propositions that are state issues. Well, we could leave room in the podcast summary and I could insert that because that's one way I'd get to find out a great deal about candidates up and down ballot, what, how they answer and what they answer with. So I'm going to be asking about Prop 22 and mm -hmm. Prop 25, which is, it's been an enormous kind of civic exercise. I just got a couple of more texts this morning about uh, information about Prop 25 replaces bail with pre-trial risk assessment. So it, since it, those overlap, I'm picking those specifically because of her work in justice and consumer protection and worker rights. I, I do wanna know uh, what I can from her. Well, it, Liz, it, yes. Claudia, I, on, on the second question on, on, on Proposition 25, um, again, she has not, not weighed in on the, on the propositions, but she, she is a co-sponsor of legislation in the house um, that would end cash bail. Um, it's a, it's a, a bill led by Congressman Ted Lieu um, that she very recently um, joined as a co-sponsor. So on that issue um, of, of ending cash bail, she has, um, she has weighed in um, by supporting that legislation. But, that, but 25 is a, it's a two-parter. There's if no cash bail, then we are dealing with a pre-trial risk assessment, which mm -hmm. has many, many 
features to it that require our best scrutiny, we as the voters. And it's an amazing exercise we're all having. So well, I'll, I'll connect uh, with the team and, and follow up on that. But on the, again, the cash bail part of that, I know she's, she's taken a position federally. Okay, thank you for that. Well, <laughs> listeners, Jordan, they would think I was remiss if I didn't ask about Congresswoman Porter's aspirations with some job positions that might be opening up, all of them being federal jobs. Mm. Well, you know, the Congressman has said clearly she is is ready to serve and do what is, is best for the people of Orange County constituents in the 45th Congressional District of the state. So that's all I can say on that. But I, I'll say, Claudia, you know, she's really enjoyed her, her first term in Congress. And what one thing that she loves most about this job, which is is unique to her role in the House, is that she gets to learn and work on so many different issues. You know, she has a background in law and consumer protection and um, regulating Wall Street. But in her position in the House, she's working on issues relating to foreign affairs, gun control, climate change, as you mentioned. And that diversity of issues is something that she's really enjoyed. And so she has loved her work in the House, that's all I will say, um, and the work that she's gotten to do on those committees. But she is a tireless fighter for the people and, and working people in California. So um, yeah, that's what I, what's what I, what I can say about that. Okay, because it's I know it's a it's a bit of a parlor uh, discussion point, and yep. we can lots of people are projecting her, and the, there's some early endorsements for a, a Senate seat that might open up sometime in November. So it's it there's there is a lot of movement. I'm sure I'm sure you're say, seeing a bit of it. Yeah, you know she is just not really focused on that right now, and sort of tirelessly doing what she can do both to be reelected to the House and earn that from the constituents of the 45th district, but um, also supporting other candidates um, across the country, including Vice President Biden um, and even other Senate candidates. So she's going kind to of be working tirelessly over the next two weeks to to deliver this election and do what she can to elect Joe Biden president. Well, since she has been physically here a lot in Irvine, right here in University Hills, I might add, that it does beg a question about whether that's opportunity, but I'd like to know, Jordan, for you to sort of tell the story of the kinds of local government interactions with the congressional office. The, the kind of official business you can tell us between the county board of supervisors, mayor's offices throughout, uh, and city council offices throughout the congressional district 45. Yeah, no, very good question. I think COVID has just made that just, it's always something that's important part of the work, but even that much more important, these people that are on the ground dealing with the essential workers, first responders that are dealing with this crisis on a day-to-day -day basis. And we have kept this focus of being accessible and listening to constituents, and that includes local elected officials. So one, one example of that is that um, COVID has really left a budget shortfall for county, city, and local governments in addition to the state. And so we worked closely with all of these local elected officials in the district to highlight that problem and what, what this budget shortfall will mean um, in real terms and let a letter signed by both Republicans and Democrats, local elected officials to leadership in the House, 
calling for that that low state and local funding, um, which was included in the HEROES Act um, that passed in June. Um, immediately after the pandemic, one of the first things that we did was organized a conference call with um, administrators and leaders at hospitals across Orange County to hear what what they were dealing with, um, again, immediately after the, the crisis came. Uh, also have, have had conference calls and, and communication with school administrators, principals, as school reopening is considered and sort of phased in right now. So there is, anytime there's a, an issue that we're dealing with, but particularly around COVID, it is, okay, well, what do we, who do we need to be talking to in the district, those leaders that we want to make sure we have their insights, views, feedback, um, as those decisions are weighed. So I'm, I'm getting the implication that there's the congressional office reaching to the local officials is it and and in reverse are the county board of supervisors mayors city council members are they working well tightly closely with the congressional office at times i think when 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 the need for collaboration and work together um, comes up and testing is another example where we have um, the congressman has met with elected officials in the county um, around the fact that testing was not accessible the way that it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, th- there is there is there's communication and building relationships and making sure that we are getting that feedback and listening to um, the issues that they're facing so that we can help be an advocate for for them in, in Congress. Well, I don't know if I'm missing any other policy arenas. I've, I've asked all of what I prepared. Is there something in addition, Jordan? Yeah. Well, I, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to just extend any uh, particular policy that we ought to be considering that I had uh, been remiss in considering. Yeah, one thing I, I thought of actually when you asked the question of, about leadership in the 117th Congress, if, if yes. the Congress is um, re-elected by the constituents here in the 45th, um, and that is reforming and modernizing Congress, where this is an institution that in many ways needs to be changed to make it work for people like the Congresswoman who is a single mother of young children, school-age children, the only one in Congress. Right. And she is not the only one in America, but she's the only one that's serving in Congress. And the realities of this job are, are very difficult, both in how the, the congressional calendar is scheduled, where they're flying back and forth sometimes twice a week. Um, and so reforming the institution to make make it accessible for people like Congressman Porter, um, but parents of young kids generally, both men and women, uh, making our dom- democracy more reflective so that the people serving in Congress look like America. Um, and that's a big priority for her and is something that she is is leading in already as a freshman member of Congress, but will again be a priority in the next Congress. And another example of that is is um, the system around remote voting. Um, that was something that she led on when she when COVID first hit. Yes. Um, and President Trump was threatening to cut off travel to the state of California. Um, didn't actually end up doing it, but had had threatened to um, in March. And what does that mean if if members of Congress in one of the states that is dealing with the first part of this public health crisis that that their representatives wouldn't be able to vote um, or give them voice in Congress? And that was just such a problem that that we tried to find a solution to. And one was ha- casting a vote remotely 
which is now for the first time in U.S. history, Congress has um, allowed that. And that was something that she led on. And she led on it so that the, the people of the 45th District in Orange County in, in the state of California were served and represented throughout this pandemic and that that was never called into question. And that's a, another part of reforming this institution to bring it in to the 21st century and make sure that every American's voice is really heard and represented in Congress. Well, Jordan Wood, I really appreciate you're making the time to be on Ask a Leader during the very last laps leading up to the November 3rd election. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Claudia. My guest was Jordan Wood speaking as a surrogate for Congresswoman Katie Porter, running as a Democrat for a second term to represent California's 45th Congressional District. Republican and council member of Mission Viejo, Greg Rath, is challenging her in this 2020 general election. The podcast of his September 18th appearance on the show is available on askaleader.com website, where today's interview will likewise be posted after the broadcast. Thanks again, Jordan. Thank you, Claudia. It was great talking. We'll be right back with Assemblywoman Hadi Petrie-Norse running for her second term in the California 74th Assembly District. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Assemblywoman Kari Petrie-Norris representing the 74th district, including the coastal Orange County communities of Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Irvine, Laguna Woods, and Laguna Beach. She is a Democrat running for her second term and is being challenged by Newport Beach City Councilwoman Diane Dixon, for whom I've received no replies despite many requests for an interview. Assemblywoman Petrie Norris serves as chair of the Accountability and Administrative Review Committee and is also a member of the Appropriations Committee, Judiciary Committee, Revenue and Taxation Committee, and Veterans Affairs Committee. Prior to being elected, Kadi Petrie Norris was a small business owner and served on the Housing and Human Services Committee of Laguna Beach. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Economics and English at Yale. She comes to us today from her home in Laguna Beach. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Assemblywoman Kadi Petrie Norris. Well, thank you, Claudia. I appreciate you inviting me and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, thank you again. So let's talk about your priorities and then we'll put them up against some of the really intense demands that may sort of shuffle up those priorities a little bit. Could you please give us the priorities that you envision going into your second term that you would serve as the 74th District Assemblywoman? Well, Claudia, I ran for State Assembly in 2018 because our district was getting shortchanged in Sacramento. And proud to say that over the course of my first term, I've been able to secure millions of dollars in funding for projects in our district. I've also been able to induce, introduce important legislation to combat climate change, to expand access to healthcare, uh, to help local businesses. And uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, 
I have been working to deliver relief and results for Orange County residents um, to help our community navigate this crisis and I'll continue to keep working with, with experts uh, to, to beat COVID-19 and to build our communities back safely and stronger than before. And in addition to uh, ensuring that uh, we are navigating the COVID-19 pandemic, my other two top priorities are economic recovery and environmental policy and uh, the work that we need to do here in California to, to address the climate crisis. So I guess, I mean, we've all heard over and over about the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on various demographics. Was it such a revelation to you that we had so many institutional shortcomings to serve every demographic, Assemblywoman Kati Petrie-Norris? Well, what we've seen is that COVID-19, I think, is both uh, spotlighted and also exacerbated systemic inequities um, here, here in California and, and, and all across the country. And um, I think that the, the area that I've been particularly focused on has been education and ensuring that as we confront this truly unprecedented crisis, we are not leaving California kids behind. And uh, we have seen that far too many students do not have access to the internet. They don't have access to a device. And we have seen the, the achievement gap widening. Uh, in the legislature, we've taken action to, to, to address this challenge. We've uh, directed CARES Act funding to our schools. We provided California schools um, over $8 billion to, to purchase much needed technology. Uh, to hire additional staff and to provide you know, even meals for students right now. Um, and in the face of, of pretty significant budget challenges, we've been able to preserve education funding. Um, but for me and for so many of my colleagues, it is a top priority for us to uh, address the, the achievement gap that we have, have seen widening as a result of, of this public health crisis. Well, I've attended one of your webinars. You've hosted quite a few where you've been putting yourself out there in the name of public ed education. Could you, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris, talk about your collaboration specifically with local governments? How is that working with uh, the public health safety sort of education and the economic rescue responses? How, how is it working with most local government officials as sort of a, an obvious crossing the aisle exercise. What's been your experience since the lockdown? Well, at every level, uh, we have had our, uh, our representatives just stepping up and stepping in to do everything that they can to help our community in, in this moment of crisis. We've seen so many of our cities who have set up rental relief funds, small business recovery groups, uh, and are, are coming up with innovative and creative ways to, to help their constituents, to help families, to help the, the small businesses who have been really devastated by, by this pandemic. And uh, for my part, I have championed legislation to secure emergency supplies of personal protective equipment for, for our, our local nurses, doctors, and uh, first responders. I have pushed to expand testing for first responders. I've uh, called and texted more than 20,000 seniors to ensure that they've, they're connected with, 
the resources and support that they need right now. And uh, my office has helped more than a thousand of our uh, of, of our residents access their unemployment benefits. Uh, so I think that the COVID-19 crisis really has just shown a light on how important it is for us to have good representatives at every single level of government. And uh, the partnerships that I have with our federal representatives, with, with, uh, with Katie Porter, with Harley Ruda, with our other congressional uh, delegation, and with our local leaders is absolutely vital, uh, particularly in a, in a moment like this. So at the close of this last legislative session at the end of August, there was quite the kerfuffle of how to adapt in the legislative setting to pandemic circumstances. There was a COVID positive test with a one Republican um, uh, legislative member whose name escapes me right now. And therefore what 10 different, uh, 10 other Republican legislators would have to operate remotely, then there were some other change-ups due to lockdown kinds of protocols. What did you learn from all of this in terms of trying to sort of manage that wasn't partisan, it was sort of an internal democratic supermajority kind of kind of messy legislating at the sort of when the bell was about to go off. What did you learn from that to manage now the next stretch of legislation? Well, there, there certainly is no, no playbook for a pandemic. And <laughs> uh, the, the legislature is so many of our, of our institutions and, and our businesses and our schools, we've confronted some r real challenges as we continue to try to do our work in the midst of the, of the pandemic. And um, one of the, the, the real hurdles is the simple fact that, that the constitution of, of our great state was, was written long before the age of, of Zoom, long before the age of the, the online meeting. And uh, so I think that this is really sh uh, spotlighted for me, the fact that we have an opportunity to you know, update some of the, the rules for the legislature to ensure that whether we're, we're confronting a global pandemic or any kind of an emergency, that we are able to take advantage of technology to, uh, to streamline some of the challenges and to continue to do our job as effectively as possible. For those of you who've just joined us, let me reintroduce my guest. And I need to timestamp too, the recording of this interview is October 24th. Things are breaking rather rapidly as we approach the November 3rd election. And I imagine much will happen, but this is October 24th. As we know the situation, my guest today is Assemblywoman Kati Petrine Norris here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'd like now, it's a great opportunity to talk to a legislator about all the little legislative exercises occurring with voters completing their ballots, deliberating over all 12 of our propositions. So I wanna know, I'm talking generally now and then I have some specific questions about propositions. So I'd like to ask you about how as a legislator you feel about the legislative work being handed over to the public where we have to parse over some really complicated proposition measures. 
what's what's it like to give those babies up for us to start uh, you know figuring out how to manage? Well, California is one of I believe it's 34, 34 states uh, that has an initiative process and and has this process where the the voters and all 40 million Californians have the opportunity to weigh in on some really big issues for the state. And uh, I think that what's exciting about that is that it is an opportunity for everyone, for, like I said, 40 million Californians, right, it's 30 million uh, registered voters to uh, be able to really uh, gain a level of understanding, I guess, ownership for our state and for our government. And so I think it, it makes things very personal. And uh, certainly it with, uh, I guess, with great power, is, is the phrase goes, comes great responsibility. Because like you said, there's um, a, a lot of these propositions where the, the details can be complicated. And so there's a, a big job that is required for for voters in terms of educating themselves and making sure that uh, that they are, are making their voice heard on these really, really important issues. Well, I, I have actually, just right before the recording of this interview, I've gotten a pretty sophisticated voter working on one of the propositions and it, it's an unbelievable exercise. I mean, I understand the upside is it's engaging people civically, politically, but we're faced within one proposition, there are so many kinds of different co conflicting consequences. Mm -hmm. It's very hard even to know whether one wants to say, if they think a proposition doesn't belong on the ballot, then a no vote would have the effect of the status quo, which might benefit somebody. So you really, you, that, that isn't an, a solution either for a voter. So, but, so I don't know if you feel like, like in the case of Proposition 25, from the interviewing I've done with some guests recently on my other show, Digging Out, SB 10 was, it wasn't a sort of a redraft. It was like an entire, it was entirely replaced by Proposition 25. So how do you, how do you reckon with that? You recognized a bill, but it's not what we see in Proposition 25. Uh, well, uh, with, with uh, so proposition uh, with proposition twenty five, uh, I think with any of the propositions, anyone who is able to to gather enough signatures or is able to get a, a, a measure uh, through with two thirds of the legislature's vote, then you're able to to get an initiative on the ballot. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to to be responsive to any specific uh, law or any specific uh, like legislative piece draft. of legislation. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's it's uh, it's if you can if you can get enough signatures, then you can get something on the ballot. And I'm not sure that's uh, fully appreciated that because I know the labeling is carrying uh, Prop 25 forward as an SB 20 uh, proposition. So it's it is so I want to know. Uh, if you will tell us what your positions are, I'm asking for four different ones because I see that as your purview as a legislator and or it's it's sort of a driver of where uh, of, of your own electoral prospects. What is your position on Proposition 15, the split role? 
Well, and Claudia, I made a decision early on, and it's, it's one actually a number of my colleagues uh, uh, make, which is that I actually I don't I'm not publicly endorsing for or against any of, of the propositions. Uh, like we we said, this is a really rare and special opportunity for the voters and for you know all Californians to to be able to have a vote on these these measures. I, as a legislator, get to vote for thousands of pieces yes. of legislation. Um, and so I on, on these, my vote counts every bit as much as yours and every bit as, as much as each and every one of my constituents. And I have received a similar response from another state election, a state legislator candidate. So I'm aware of that approach. And I'm sure my listeners understand this is a refrain we've heard before. So, so I'd like to know how are you working with the moving student population during this tumultuous stretch just before November 3rd? In this last week, how are you dealing with those moving so-called voter targets? Uh, well, certainly uh, campaigning in the midst of a pandemic is unlike anything that, uh, that we've ever done before. And I have to say, I miss, um, you know, I, I miss not being able to to meet with with my constituents and with residents in person. And I really enjoyed when I was running in 2018. I really enjoyed knocking on doors and having conversations with with voters, voters who agreed with me, and sometimes voters who didn't. And I really do miss that uh, that type of connection. And so we're doing our best even in the midst of this pandemic to continue to talk to voters, albeit virtually. So we're doing a lot of, a lot of Zoom events. We're doing a lot of phone banking, a lot of text banking. Um, but uh, you know, I'm looking forward to when we are able to, to beat COVID-19 and, and make, make it through this pandemic. I'm really, really looking forward to being able to, to come together with, with folks in person uh, and in conversation again. And as far as the voter, the, the students that are participating, though, is there a, a special effort on your campaign to make sure they they're registered where they want to be and they they know the parameters of what the decision was? Yes. And uh, student voter outreach has, has been a huge priority for us. Uh, it was a huge priority for us in 2018 and, and a huge priority in 2020, um, as you know. There are, are many UCI students who are, are not uh, not on campus and who are not in the district, and so they would then uh, re-register re and vote in in their uh, in their hometowns or, or wherever they are actually living right now. Um, and you know, we've worked really hard to ensure that for for students that are here in the district or living on campus uh, that that they are registered um, and that they are voting. And I would say that. Uh, for every single age group right now, we have seen record early voting. It's phenomenal. We have already had it in my district, um, I think as of yesterday, we have already had 110,000 people vote. Oh, wow. That is, it's absolutely staggering. It's, uh, it's smashing any kind of records. And I think it's just a testament to just uh, the, the enthusiasm and, and the passion that, uh, that so many of us have right now. And um, I think we, we recognize that the stakes are incredibly high in this election and, and people wanna make sure that, that their vote is counted and their voice is heard. 
And apropos the legislative process and priorities, I, I, it's a question that I just posed Congresswoman Porter's surrogate, and I see it as applying to state legislation just as much as federal legislation with the checks and balances institution in the federal government really being threatened given how the Trump administration has appointed over 24% of the federal judiciary. The federal society seems to have an extensive pipeline of litigants toward which the recent appointments in the judiciary may well be very sympathetic. How in the legislative arena in California do you plan to manage what those challenges could be to state legislation state legislation that's already been enacted. I'm thinking certainly of the California Coastal Act. Is, are there conversations among your fellow legislators about the threats to the laws that have been passed and, or you contemplate passing in the future? It's, a, it's such an important question, Claudia, and uh, really and truly a, a big issue. Um, and I think that uh, there, there, there are certainly reasons to, to be concerned for, for all the, the, the reasons that you just enumerated. Um, but I would, would say that California has a long track record of winning in court, even you know, winning in court in front of Trump nominees. And uh, the, the truth is that we have, or we have in so many ways been kind of the, the tip of the sphere in um, pushing back on some of the policies of the Trump administration that uh, we felt were, were dangerous or defied uh, the, uh, the norms of our, of our democracy. Um, and we have had a really successful track record over the course of the last four years. Um, our, our attorney general and his team have done a tremendous job and uh, I think that that gives me a, a lot of confidence that uh, that even in in the face of perhaps uh, uh, judicial appointees who are hostile to some of California's values and hostile to some of our priorities, I am confident that we will continue to be able to to pass legislation that that moves this state forward and that moves our country forward. Well, I, I hear I, and a, a positive note in your answer. I, I just don't know if all of that changes, if the rapid confirmation process underway now to appoint to the Supreme Court bench, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, if that would create a voting formula that would toss out the first litigant challenging the California Coastal Act. You're not concerned about that. Well, I think that uh, the honest truth is I'm, inc I'm incredibly concerned about the uh, ramifications of uh, Judge Barrett's becoming Justice Barrett. And I think that uh, there are many, many things that are, are under threat. Uh, women's rights, women's you know, reproductive freedoms, LGBTQ rights, uh, our environmental standards, clean air, clean water. Um, our healthcare and the uh, protection of, of pre-existing people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, so the uh, this the stakes are incredibly high with her confirmation, and um, I, I believe that uh, our 
I believe that Joe Biden has has articulated his strategy and, and his approach, which is that, that he's uh, appointing a, I think, a judicial review board um, to evaluate uh, options and then to determine an appropriate strategy to um, to just ensure that our our system of checks and balances are appropriate and uh, that uh, we continue to to, uh, to to build and uh, to refine the, the, the great experiment that is America's democracy. Well, that gives us a chance to assume, resume a little deep breathing and I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> have to come back to that, those uh, <laughs> affirming words uh, in the future. So um, I'd like just briefly, if you could let us know, you've talked a little bit about how you're engaging voters. Is there anything special that you're doing to promote down ballot participation? One thing that I have learned in, in uh, my, my two years as, as your assemblywoman is just how important it is for us to have good elected officials at every single level. Uh, you know, we, we know we need good people in Congress. And I think sometimes people sometimes forget that we also need good people on our local school boards, on our water boards, on uh, on our city councils, and um, that has it. That is is and will continue to be a priority for me. And um, I'm excited because I think that we have got some tremendous, tremendous candidates running for local office in in each of the six cities that I that I am uh, that am privileged to represent. Well, I really thank you for all the time you're giving us in this very, very crammed now this final the final lapse of this electoral season we've never seen anything like ever before in in generations if ever so i i want to thank you so much assemblywoman kati petrie norse for your time today on ask a leader well thank you claudia and uh we are we are just seven days away from the most important election of our lifetime Thank you to everyone who's already voted and uh, to everyone else, get those ballots in, make sure to vote and make sure that your voice is heard. Well, thank you. My guest was Assemblywoman Kati Petrie-Norse representing the 74th district, including Orange County communities of Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Irvine, Laguna Woods and Laguna Beach. She is a Democrat running for her second term as being challenged by Newport Beach Councilwoman Diane Dixon. She may grant me an interview, and in that case, I would podcast that. It will not be broadcast. Those slots are over. The next show will be all about Ask a Voter on November 3rd. Thank you for so much for your time, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris. Bye, Claudia. Good to see you. Well, folks, I leave you with a week to make some good choices. Number one, vote if you haven't already. Number two, make sure all your loved ones and all your friends vote. Help them with their voting plans. Number three, doom scrolling still? Really? You could be spending that precious lockdown time hanging out on Ballotpedia or Voter's Edge. Number four, send your kiddos a choice comic strip right after telling them that you'll love them. Number five, Stay tuned to the best that KUCI can offer and send us a donation on KUCI.org. 
number six. Repeat numbers two through six, because voting twice is illegal. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, it's election day. Deep, deep cleansing breaths, everyone. I'll bring on my time-honored ritual on election day of turning ask a leader into ask a voter. I always cherish the voter stories. Let's listen to them together, eh? Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mask, it doesn't have to match your outfit. Just match your fine attitude.